This is Healthcare Strategies. Hello, and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. I'm Anuja Vaidya, Senior Editor and Special Events Lead at mHealth Intelligence. Telehealth has become a key aspect of care delivery amid the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Research shows it can be used to provide care across a variety of conditions, including complex illnesses like cancer and chronic diseases like diabetes. Telehealth has been shown to help improve patient outcomes and reduce barriers that prevent care access, such as transportation. But access to virtual care itself is not always a given. Various hurdles can prevent people from experiencing telehealth benefits, especially among those populations that stand to benefit the most. Today, Adam Hornung, Executive Director of Telehealth Operations at Intermountain Healthcare, is joining us to discuss the health system's virtual care strategy, the most common barriers to accessing virtual care among its patient population, and how Intermountain is working to break them down. Mr. Hornung, thank you so much for coming on to Healthcare Strategies today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Look forward to talking. Likewise. So let's jump right in. Could you provide just a, a brief overview of how Intermountain Healthcare is using virtual care today? Yeah, thanks. So virtual care for Intermountain is a part of our strategy. We have in-person care. We have virtual care. We love to think of virtual care as just another way for us to reach our patients. And the mantra we really look at using within virtual care and any care really is how do we get the right patient on the right care plan as fast as possible? That's a really overreaching statement, but it's really what we get back to when we talk about virtual care programs and what should we do? What should we not do? And if virtual offers us a way to be more efficient in terms of getting the right patient on the right care plan faster, then we embrace it. And so it sounds a little bit cliche, but that's really what we go back to when we talk about virtual care and where we spend our resources and what we put our energy into. Absolutely. Now that's the fundamental promise of virtual care, you know, increasing that accessibility, helping get patients to the care they need quicker. And, you know, I'm assuming that Intermountain, like most other healthcare organizations during the pandemic, has experienced a huge jump in virtual care usage. So can you give us a sense of sort of how you manage that leap? And then also just where you at right now in terms of telehealth and remote patient monitoring usage levels across your system? Yeah, we definitely a huge surge came quickly. We really benefited, though, from foresight of our senior executive leaders and in investing in telehealth early. A lot of folks were in the business of kind of setting up infrastructure and getting providers to the point where they could actually interact with patients using digital tools. We were really fortunate that the infrastructure was in place. We really didn't spend a lot of time on basic infrastructure. It was really about scaling. I remember really well the early days of the pandemic, us, you know, huddling around a, a conference room on a whiteboard, thinking about how are we going to do this? And we did scale some things, but from an infrastructure standpoint, we had it. And so it was really about education and making sure we had enough licenses for everybody to get on that wanted to get on. At some points, it was about a little bit more hardware in tablet form, things like that and spending a lot of time with our clinical teams on who could do things virtually and who couldn't and 
you know, how could we enable this group on this day and this group the next day and really looking at our system plan in terms of how did we see ourselves managing the pandemic from a surge standpoint? We had a three-tiered approach to how are we going to do this from a hospital standpoint and really matching up our telehealth resources with that tiered plan was a lot of the work. And then, of course, on the outpatient side, how do you get video visits up and scaled for several thousand providers to be connecting with their patients? Because very quickly, that became the only way that the health system could interact with patients who didn't have emergent conditions. And so it was fortunate for us that we really quickly got into conversations with clinical teams on how do we scale this and not as much on the infrastructure side, which, again, very grateful to our senior leadership for investing in that prior to the pandemic. It really allowed us to do some great things with our clinical teams. The other thing I had mentioned in terms of how did we deal with the pandemic using virtual health, our leadership also had enough foresight to co-locate our transfer center services with our telehealth teams. So for example, as you know, and then this was true across the country, critical care beds were really, really short, really, really quickly. And from a logistics standpoint for a hospital, one hospital to manage that is tough. For an integrated delivery system with, you know, 24 or 25 hospitals and outreach hospitals that we are serving as well, logistically that got really challenging really quickly. We were fortunate to have our transfer center team who takes all inbound calls for patient transport, whether it's within the system, without the system, into one place, and they're located physically next to our telecritical care team. And so we really had a great opportunity to be able to load balance patients and not send everyone to the biggest hospital, which would quickly overwhelm them. We, we were overwhelmed, but I would dare say that without the integrated operation between telehealth and our patient transfer services, we would have been in a much more difficult spot than we were in. And so I think we were able to take advantage of some of that stuff as well. Fantastic. And where are usage levels today? I mean, you know, we've seen report after report talk about that spike and then things sort of leveling off. But at the same time, we did, you know, just recently have this Omicron surge, which again, kind of spiked those levels. So where is it at now? Have you seen it really drop off? Have you seen it kind of stabilize? It's eased back a little bit, which we're not excited about, right? Mm -hmm. We want to keep the momentum. We do not want things to go back to quote unquote normal when it comes to utilization of virtual health. So for a couple of numbers I could give you, you know, we see about, you know, anywhere between 900 and 1,000 virtual urgent care visits a week. You know, within a week, we'll have five to 6,000 video visits within our medical group. And a little, little shy of 10% of our total outpatient interactions are virtual. That number, as you mentioned, is backed off a little bit, and we're working to try to get that up higher, which we're having success with. And nearly, you know, between 17 and 20% of our inpatient discharges will have had a telehealth interaction at some point during their stay. And so we've got utilization that we're proud of, but we know we're nowhere near there. We have not arrived, right? And I think that's the important message is we've done a lot of good, difficult work, and we've got a lot of good, difficult work left to go before we're going to say that we're satisfied with that. Absolutely. That's that's a great way of putting it. And I'm sure part of that work that lies ahead is also 
addressing some of the care access barriers that certain populations face, because along with these big spikes in usage, we have also seen that access to technology, to digital health literacy, to the tools that are needed are just not uniform. So let's talk a little bit about that. What do you see as some of the most significant barriers to virtual care access? And in your experience, looking at Intermountain's patient population, which populations are most likely to face those barriers? It's a great question, and it's something we're paying a lot of attention to, right? When we talk about disparities and equity, and that's critical for us, right? I mean, as you mentioned, Technology-assisted care really has the opportunity to draw folks in who have experienced barriers for a long time. Now, that doesn't mean that virtual care is without its own barriers, right? And we're very aware of those. We're very fortunate at Intermountain to have a really active community health arm of the company whose mission it is to, to figure out and help us all figure out how do we reach everybody? It doesn't do us any good to extend access without addressing some of the issues that are inherent in the system and have been for a long time. And so I'm, I'm really proud to be able to partner with them to really ask some tough questions, mm-hmm. right? And take a really good look in the mirror to say, hey, are we as accessible as we should be? And the answer today is no. We've got work to do, but I'm happy to say that the work is ongoing, that we're aware of it. We're talking to patients, we're talking to community leaders about what what is it that we can do to make sure that we give everybody opportunity to access the care that they need. And I recognize we're really fortunate in that aspect to have a very active community health team to help us with that. Any operator of one service, be it a medical group, be it virtual care strategy, be it hospitals, Mm -hmm. tough to do that alone. Mm -hmm. And so we're very, very fortunate to be able to partner with our community health team to have patient panels where we actually ask community members about this kind of thing and, and help them teach us what we need to be doing to serve them better and to act on those. And so I'm proud that that work is in place, that it started and acknowledge that we've got an awful long way to go to really close those gaps, but we're working hard to do it. That's great. And absolutely kind of need that focused attention. And it's great that you have a team sort of dedicated to that. I'd love to hear a little bit about what have they learned from these patient panels? Where are those barriers that really need to be kind of broken down today? So I think there are some that are fairly obvious. We want to have folks who speak native languages of those who may be underserved available for at least interpretation, if not care. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure that anything we have in an app or our My Health Plus digital first portal, that they've got access to those things in their native language. Mm-hmm. As you know, in, in this space, that's a big lift, but it doesn't mean that it's not an important lift and something that we shouldn't focus a whole lot of resources on, which we are right now. And so I think those are some of the things that we're looking at And some of the other things that we'll be looking at are just cultural experiences with things like mental health, with things like physical health. How do do we approach these things with different folks of different backgrounds to make sure that we are able to deliver the expertise that we've got in a way that folks are going to be able to receive that in a way that's going to help them live the healthiest life that they possibly can live. And so those are some of the things that are underway right now. And quite frankly, we're going to learn some things from that group that we hadn't thought of. Mm -hmm. In the spirit of really coming together and taking care of a population, I think 
that's critically important for us to understand as we go to the table with these folks that we, we don't have all the answers. Right. They will have all the answers in terms of how we ought to be serving them. And it's really incumbent upon us to listen and really execute against the things that we learn with them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, we, that dialogue needs to be open and continuous to really figure out where those care gaps are. You know, and another area in which we really see sort of these widening care gaps is the digital divide and technology access. So how is Intermountain tackling that? How is it sort of helping its patient population get access to just the tools that are needed to participate in virtual care? Yeah, so great question. And and it's a significant effort here at Intermountain on that front to make sure people have what they need. I'll give you a practical example of something that happens every day at Intermountain. And then I'll talk to you a little bit about some of the things that our consumer team who's developed My Health Plus, which is our really our digital front door for folks. But one, from a scheduled video visit perspective, we almost overnight ask providers and patients to flip to this kind of new platform, new way of engaging. And, and while it was alive and working prior to the pandemic, I mean, we're talking about, you know, a handful of these that happened a day to several thousand. So the dynamic that existed there, we understood really quickly, there was a gap between how somebody experiences an in-person visit where you walk in, you check in, you sit down, an MA comes to get you, they take your vitals, they sit you in the room, they ask you some questions, and they go get the doctor. And it's fairly smooth because you hardly think about it. But there's a lot that goes on from the time a patient walks into a clinic to when they're seen by a physician. And so there was a lot between, hey, let's get this person scheduled for a video visit, and when they saw the provider, right? Apps for some folks are fairly familiar and for some folks, not very familiar. And so we've developed this concept of virtual rooming where there's a lot of work up front that goes into, hey, is everything working on your end? Is everything working on our end? And making sure that process, you know, prior to meeting with a physician or an APP, smooth. And early it wasn't, admittedly. A lot of work has gone into that to make sure that we've got that kind of a health check on the technology, the patient knows what to do, the provider knows what to do, and and we're all set. It sounds simple, but not very simple and not a small lift. And so that's one practical way that we've been working on bridging that gap. The other instance I'll give you, it's more strategic, it's more long-term on My Health Plus, which is our consumer-facing app for Intermountain Healthcare, there's a lot of work that's going in talking to patients, talking to folks about what's easy to use, what isn't easy to use, and making sure it's easy to schedule an appointment, to pay for care, to schedule online, to all these things, right, that have been in place in other industries for years that we in healthcare just haven't done a great job of keeping up on. And making sure that interaction with My Health Plus on our side is easy and intuitive, right? Because now if you open a banking app, it's, it's fairly intuitive. I'm not saying there's no questions, but you, you more or less know what to do, right? And we know we've got to get to that point with folks where when they get on, it's fairly clear that, you know, they know what to do. Now, healthcare is complex, right? I'm not saying healthcare is simple. It's complex, but we still have to make it 
simple for people to digest. And if they know what they want to do, we need to make it easier for them to do that. And so there's a ton of work going in on our digital front door to be able to do that. So it's not simply a health portal, right? It's something that people can actually use to interact with our system and, and do it in a way that's simple, easy to understand. And again, back to that comment of how do we make sure the communities that we serve get the information they need from us as quickly as possible, be it care or be it something else. So a lot going on on those two fronts. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that usability factor is really, really key as we continue to use virtual care more and more. So I'd love to kind of go back a little bit to the work that you're doing with your community health groups and the patient panels, because I do think a key issue that health systems really have to address is even finding the populations that are having trouble accessing virtual care, right? You don't know what you don't know. So you need to kind of be proactive about even finding those people who really need access and don't have it. So how is Intermountain going about doing that? Great question. And, and I would point out for us, it's really about us finding those who are having difficulty accessing care, period, right? Mm-hmm. And for some of those folks, digital may be the answer. And for some of them, it, it may not be. But I think Intermountain is around 50% prepaid for the people that we take care of. So when we talk about risk, Intermountain's at risk for about half the population that we serve. And so we've done a good job through Castell, through Select Health, understanding how are we performing in the space where we get paid to keep people well. And, And then it's really about How do you engage with people? How do you make sure that they have access to preventative care? How do you make sure that we have access to them and they have access to us way upstream before somebody shows up to an ER with a stroke or a heart attack or things like that? And so Mm -hmm. us being in that kind of a position, being prepaid for about half of the people that we take care of, from a data perspective, we understand really well by zip code who we need to do work with in terms of reaching out and engaging with them and, you know, helping to understand what are the things we can do better to make sure that they're engaged with us. And so I think we're at an advantage a bit on that front because we've really stepped hard into the space of how do we get paid to keep people well instead of just waiting for when they're sick. And so knowing by zip code, what's the average life expectancy in this zip code and this zip code and this, we we know where we need to be. And then we can move on to the work of how do we actually solve this with them. So again, I think we benefit a bit from being heavily in the risk space and being incentivized to keep people well instead of waiting for them to be sick. So from a structure standpoint, we are advantaged a bit by that and in understanding that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I I also know that Intermountain is one of the health systems sort of using virtual care and telehealth for some pretty complex conditions like cancer, for example. Could you speak a little bit to that and the specific kind of barriers maybe some of these patients with more complex needs are facing and kind of what Intermountain is doing to help them? Sure. Sure. These are really kind of the fun use cases to talk about, right? We deal with complex problems all the time. And sometimes we have answers and sometimes we got to go find them. So it's nice now to be talking a little bit about having found some of these answers and talking about stories, but you're right. We are not scared off by complex medical conditions when it comes to virtual care. We really go back to that mantra again that, hey, if this is the right thing to do, 
and it's the right way to get the right patient on the right plan of care as fast as possible, we're going to do it. Cancer is a great example, right? I think when you think telehealth, I would venture a guess that cancer does not come to mind first for a lot of people. But we had a situation in central Utah where folks were receiving a diagnosis of cancer, which is a scary diagnosis. And at times it's daunting in terms of a treatment plan. And if you live several hours away from a cancer center, the prospect of you driving to that cancer center two times a week or three times a week or once a week or once every other week, when you have to take a day off of work and someone from your family has to take a day off of work and you have to drive through a couple of snowy mountain passes, you can understand. And we had this situation in central Utah where people were electing not to get treatment after a cancer diagnosis. And that doesn't feel good for anybody in healthcare, right? To hear that because it's inconvenient, because it's so hard to pull this stuff off and it's so disruptive to people's lives that they would elect not to get care is, it's a hard realization. And so in that instance, we knew like, we, we got to do something here. We can't just hear that and, and be okay with it because of geography, right? So yeah, cancer is one where we set up an outstanding team of medical oncologists who were willing to say, let's give it a go. Let's see what happens. Interestingly enough, the initial thought was we really ought to offer to patients to come down to the cancer center for at least their first appointment. They want to see me. I want to be able to hug them. Cancer is a personal specialty. And so we, we offered that to folks, right? For your first appointment, you can go down to the cancer center. We can do everything else by telehealth, or we can do everything by telehealth. Mm-hmm. And exactly zero patients took us up on making the drive. Mm-hmm. Even though they love their doctor, they, you know, they, their strong emotions around cancer treatment. It's just a testament to how important it is to keep people local whenever possible. To date, we've treated several hundred patients in that one central Utah community that have come up with a cancer diagnosis and and been able to treat them local via telehealth and and via our medical oncologist being able to collaborate with the patient and their primary care provider and our pharmacy and, you know, getting our pharmacy involved to mix medications to send it for them to be able to get an infusion in their own communities undoubtedly saved hundreds of lives in that community. And so, yeah, we don't shy away from complexity. It's incumbent upon us to say, can we possibly do it? And if there's a possible way we can do it and it's better for the patient, it's more convenient for the patient, then we owe it to them to try. And so that's one story. We have several others, stroke. We have, you know, an infectious disease capability where we've had some pretty odd diagnoses in some pretty small towns that may not have been caught without the opportunity that physicians in that local community would have to have an infectious diseases consult with ID specialists in Salt Lake City. Neonatal resuscitations on difficult births and you know, hospitalist care overnight in some pretty small places to crisis care and behavioral health. And we, I mean, there's story after story about how leveraging digital health has led to an opportunity to serve patients that would not have existed previously. So we're really, really proud of the progress we've made and on that front. Again, are we completely there yet? We got a lot of work left to do, but we're really proud of the work that's happened so far. Fantastic. Well, I think that is a great note to 
close on reinforcing the idea that really it's about keeping people comfortable, local, making care convenient, making care accessible. And of course, we're keeping an eye on these barriers and looking to, to tear them down. We're just opening it up to more people. So fantastic. Thank you so much, Mr. Hornung. I really appreciate you being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me on. And for our listeners, feel free to reach out to us at avedya at extelligentmedia.com. That's A V A I D Y A at extelligentmedia.com to share your thoughts on this topic. You can also use that email address to tell us any healthcare related questions or stories you would like us to consider covering. Also, if you enjoyed today's conversation, please do let us know. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts and write us a review. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an Extelligent Healthcare Media production.